Mark chapter 5. We're going to go ahead and read another large section, and it's going to be verses 21 through the end of the chapter, verse 43. To refresh your memory. Yeah, thanks, Randy. Are you making it cooler in here? It's hot, right? Just to orient you, this for um, where we are in the book. Of course, Mark, very picturesque gospel, very rapid pace. Really, there's this big section that sort of starts at the end of chapter 4, verse 41, when he, um, just after Jesus gives the parable of the seeds, there's sort of a, a pause there. He gives this parable and explains what the seeds mean and how we are the sowers and we cast the word and the Lord takes care of those seeds and causes it to grow. And then he jumps back into the another action phase and the first real action there is when they're in the boats going across the sea and there's a huge storm that they're all going to die. They think they're going to die and he just speaks and the waves stop, the wind stops. It's a miracle an awesome miracle. And they finished chapter 4. It says, verse 41, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So they're awestruck, obviously. The miracle worker controls nature just by speaking it. And then from there, they land on the, other, on the western side of the Sea of Galilee in the county of the Gerasenes. And that's where we read this really dramatic account of Jesus meeting the demons who are possessing at least two men, but one of them for sure was sort of spokesman. And we went through that last week and what a um, real dramatic story that is, unique in the whole Bible about what we learn about demons and the power of demons, but they're not that powerful compared to Jesus. And a lot of the lessons we learned from that were uh, Christians don't have anything to be afraid of with demons. Demons cannot possess a Christian. Demon possession is a lot different from the influence a demon might have on a Christian. And the main way the demon would influence a Christian is through what did we determine? Mainly it's through like lying, through like getting you to think something that's not quite true and steering you away from the truth, which is why we always are committed to the word. And we have to keep to that and stick to it. And uh, if our mind is telling us something different, well, the devil likes that, and he may be behind presenting things to us to steer us away from the truth. So the devil is still the prince of the power of the air. He's very active in earth, and we have to be aware of it, but we're not scared that he can possess any of us. In fact, the devil is scared of Christians because the Holy Spirit's in us, and he's frightened of Christians. They were frightened of Jesus for sure in a panic mode when they met him. Why are you here, Jesus? The time is not quite right is it and they were really in a panic mode and so happy to be cast into the pigs versus being cast into the abyss so we we went through that uh, last week and then this week uh, I think another really dramatic uh, series of miracles that he performs with healings and raising a young lady from the dead Um, so we'll read that and I'm trying to figure out how we'll finish so we'll finish next week with the first half of chapter 6 where Jesus uh, goes to Nazareth at his hometown. He's not wanted there. They don't respect him in Nazareth. And then he casts out his uh, disciples into the world and they they uh, heal people and cast out demons. And that'll be a nice place to end uh, before we meet again in about seven weeks to resume chapter 6. Um, you'll notice, by the way, if you want to flip ahead to where we're going and look at the end of chapter 6. You know, it's just uh, amazing how active Jesus is and we see his ministry and it's tireless and he's constantly mobbed and mobbed and mobbed and he goes and goes and goes and his disciples go and go and it's very physical. And uh, at the end of chapter 6, I'll just read this because um, this is where we'll sort of pick up when we come back. He says... um, not the end of chapter 6. It's chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. This is when they come back from after being sent out. And he said to them, 
come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. So finally, all right, they're going to go away to a secluded place, get a little rest. Jesus needs rest, actually. He's human, too, but his disciples need rest. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Ah, right? Then you look at verse 33. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. So that's just a primer for you as to where Jesus and his disciples are going. They finally get some rest, and they decide to have a little vacation, probably a day or so or maybe even hours. And they see them, and they run and get there before them, and they're not going to get any rest at all. So we'll pick up there, though, when we come back in September. So let me go ahead and read uh, these 20-some verses. And as I read them, uh, pay attention to the people. Again, we have the crowds that are ever-present, and you can pay attention to how they interact with Jesus and the disciples. Pay attention to what Jesus is doing, of course. And then the other characters we have are Jairus, who is the uh, synagogue official. We have Jairus' daughter, who is dying and she actually does die, and Jesus raises her from the dead. And then in the middle of that, you have this woman with a hemorrhage for 12 years. And then you have the disciples. So just pay attention to all the different characters and how they interact. When I uh, listened to John MacArthur preach on the demoniac, he gave this introduction, which was really neat. He said, you know, some uh, when they teach the young pastors how to preach, a large part of preaching, this isn't preaching, I'm Sunday school, it's different, but the point is when they teach them how to preach, they like to have an introduction. You know, they teach them, give a good introduction, get people's attention, um, so they'll pay attention to what you say, and then you launch into the scripture. And he said, with the demoniac account, he said, that's the scripture where really it doesn't need an introduction. You just read it, and it's like you're riveted by the story, right? Well, to me, actually, this, this story is more riveting maybe because I have the medical background and I like some of the things that it says in here, but uh, I think it's a really interesting story when you pay attention to how all people interact and what we can learn about the Lord and how he works in human nature. So let me go ahead and read that. It's Mark chapter 5, verse 21. After they heal the demoniac, right? They're on the west side of the sea. They hop in the boat and they come back to this area in Galilee. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat, To the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. So he can't, he has to stay there by the seashore. There's so many people again. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official And he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing, and entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, 
But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, uh, Talitha, come, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. So, so many details in here that I want to go over. But I think really fascinating story. And we'll summarize it at the end, some of the main points. But what I want to do, I just want to, any questions about that? Or anything jump out at you before I start that is really to you interesting or dramatic? I want to be sure I don't miss it. Anything about these stories that you think is unique compared to other stories we've read? Okay, well, I'll, I'll bring some of these points out here as we go through it. The first thing I'll say, uh, you don't have to put your fingers there, but Matthew and Luke have similar versions of this event. Um, Mark's is the longest. You might remember with Mark, he... Um, it's the shortest gospel, but when he tells a story, the accounts of the story are usually the longest. And it's the same way with this one. His version of the story is some 22 verses. Matthew only spends about 9 verses, and Luke only about 16 verses. So Mark will add a lot of other details that the other gospel writers leave out. First thing to note in verse 21 is that uh, there's a large crowd already there at the sea. So even though Jesus had been gone for I don't know how long over in the Geras- county of the Gerasenes with the demons... The people from Galilee uh, were waiting for him to come back. I don't know if they're waiting because Jairus' daughter had been ill for a long time and that was a particular need that uh, was before them, but probably there were lots of people sick and they were like, well, when's he going to come back and start healing us again? But Luke says in his account that they had all been waiting on him. So the idea here is that people saw Jesus leave and they're just sort of waiting at the seashore for him to return and help them. So many people there that he really can't go beyond the seashore without pushing through everybody. One of the synagogue officials, well, that's interesting, right? Because what have the synagogue officials been doing to Jesus up until now? Persecuting him. They're the ones that want to destroy him. They are the ones that are losing their grip on power. Jesus is in their synagogue. The very first miracle he does is cast out a demon in the synagogue, and it's in this region of Capernaum. So this may... This guy may have been there when he saw that. And Jesus leaves there and he has the clinic at Peter's mother's house and all the people come and he heals them. And there's a a lot of resentment building up among the Pharisees for sure. We don't know if this fellow was a Pharisee, but he was a leader of the synagogue, so he at least knew them very well. So they're in the same group together. So it's really interesting that the synagogue official, when calamity hits, his daughter's dying, uh, he decides to seek out the healer. He knows Jesus is able to help his daughter. She was sick. Uh, So he knew about Jesus' previous miracles. Uh, Just by the way, there are several healings of synagogues, officials, slaves, sons. I I just want to clarify for you that that they're not all the same event. In John chapter 4, there is a royal official's son who is sick, and Jesus heals. And that would have been before this because the timeline of John, these events were before this. So don't get these confused. So this is the synagogue official's daughter. In John chapter 4, there's a royal official's son. Another miracle that we get confused about is in Luke chapter 7, there's a centurion's slave that's healed. And the slave was like a son to the centurion. But that's another miracle. So there's really three of these different miracles that uh, can confuse us. But... This one is unique, but it's recorded three times in the Synoptic Gospels. So um, the official is desperate. He needs Jesus' help, and he goes to him humbly. And he, it says in verse 23, he implores him. And so this is an interesting word. We'll visit it a few other times. But imploring, basically, this is a parakaleo word. You know, he's begging, right? He is appealing. He's begging, please Please, beseeching him is another way of translating, pleading with him, earnestly saying to him, my little daughter is to the point of death. Please, please come, lay your hands on her so she'll get well and live. So he humbles himself. It must have been hard for him to do that, to go against his friends. And he was the leader of the synagogue, and so all these people would have seen him 
you know, turning 180 degrees away from a position of being against Jesus to being for him. Right. That's right. Yeah, he's prostrate. Humility completely. And in fact, if you look at, uh, um, yeah, Matthew says he bowed down before him. And Luke also has similar words. Um, yeah, fell at Jesus' feet and began to entreat him, come to his house. So yeah, extremely humble for him to do that. And it speaks to how much, obviously, he loved his daughter and cared about her and how worried he was and how much he trusted Jesus to solve this problem. Luke tells us it was his only daughter. In Luke chapter 8, verse 42, it says he had only one daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. So it's his only daughter. She's 12, extremely precious to him. It's also interesting that uh, he calls her his little daughter. And at that time, 12-year-old was considered starting womanhood. Right? So, so he, he doesn't see her as a woman yet. Right? We wouldn't see 12-year-olds as women, but that was the age about when they started looking for husbands, you know, about the age of 12. So, but to this fellow, she's still the little girl, and she's still in his house, and he's extremely obviously worried about her. Um, okay, so he, he implores Jesus, and of course, what does Jesus do? He responds, verse 24. He went off with him, and this large crowd is following and they're pressing in on him. And that word pressing literally is they're pressing. It's a mob. And they're all touching him. They're all bumping him. And he's trying. Remember when he got there, he couldn't even get beyond the seashore because there's so many people. So he has to pick his way through this huge crowd of people that apparently they were letting him take care of Jairus, the, the synagogue leader's daughter. So that was priority for, for them. And they're allowing Jesus to pass through and all pushing in on him so he can make his way to the house. And then you have this sidebar. It's, it's so interesting. So, so Jesus is going to perform a miracle, and then a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years comes up. Well, so just think of that poor woman. Um, what do you know about women who had menstrual periods based on the Levitical law? They're considered unclean, right? And for seven days after that, we won't go back to it, but basically they couldn't touch anything. You couldn't touch them. They had to do some ceremonial washings of their garments and their bedding, etc. So uh, they were considered unclean during this time, all right? So, and you already know women had a low status in Palestine at that time, too. So you have this woman who is constantly having her menstrual period. So what does that mean as far as her social life? completely outcast. She is ashamed. She's dirty. No one can touch her. No one can be around her. She, she can't go to the temple ever because you couldn't go to the temple. I think it was for seven days you couldn't go to the temple after your menstrual flow. So she's completely, thoroughly outcast, right? It explains why she's sneaking up on him, right? It explains why there's this crowd. She's sort of taking advantage of the anonymity of the whole scene and comes in behind, just going to touch his cloak and see if that'll help. That's a real humble picture, right? Imagine how horrified she was when she had to identify herself. Yes, we'll get there, exactly. So that, that adds color to what's going on, when, why she's so fearful that she knows, oops, he knew that, and she knows he's going to turn around. And so, yeah, that, that explains why she's so, part of why she's so fearful after Jesus turns and looks at her. So she was always unclean, always an outcast, never able to have fellowship with people, really like a leper would be. You know, in that time, she was similar to the problems the lepers would have. Uh, I think it's fascinating, actually, and MacArthur brings this out, um, not too, because he got me onto it, but it, it, it is striking to compare J- Jairus and the woman. Okay, they're complete opposites. Jairus is... He's, of course, a man. She's a woman. He's uh, highly respected, rich. We know he's got means because when we see their house, they have multiple rooms. So he's a synagogue official. He's a public man. He's well-known. He's established. She's a poor woman, 
outcast, ostracized, rejected, ashamed. All right, so two completely opposite people that Jesus is going to help. Um, he's the leader. She's excommunicated. It's so interesting. His daughter's 12 years old, and she's had a 12-year hemorrhage. Don't know what to make of that, but it, Mark points it out. So as long as this girl has been alive, the daughter, this other woman has had this unclean bleeding. So it's intentional. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, if you can, right. So don't get too much into the physical. But, yeah, if you have period all the time, women even today get anemic and they get tired and they're dragging the knock. They feel terrible. It's awful. But it sounds like she. Come on in here, Randy. Come on up. Well. Good timing, yeah. So, uh, but, I, but I don't want it. We won't spend much time on it, but, but we get the point, right? But I, it's in the Bible for a reason, and I think because we all understand what she's going through, and it, it's misery, obviously. Um, where was I, Randy? Don't ask me. Mark chapter 5. Okay, so, so, she, so this is an interlude, right? So Jesus is going to Jairus' house. This lady comes up, has his hemorrhage, and verse 26, which I could talk all day about this verse. I actually like it a lot, but it is really interesting. Mark does not have a high view of doctors. He, I mean, he doesn't. Just read it. He had endured, oh, and had endured much at the hands of many physicians. There's a lot of prepositional phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase before he gets to the verb. Endured much at the hands of many physicians, had spent all that she had, was not helped at all. And it's almost like she says, actually, she got worse. All right? So, yeah. Yeah, the NASB says, but rather had grown worse. So, it's clearly that's the intention of Mark. He, he's really trying to um, describe for us the futility of man's efforts, even the experts, the healers, you know, the healers that. Charged a lot of money, apparently, even back then, it was expensive to see the doctors. And she'd gone to many, doctor after doctor after doctor, and she got worse. They couldn't help her. I mean, medical treatment back then was really crude. There's no telling what they did, but it wasn't much. This is a time of, you guys know Hippocrates? He was like 400 years B.C., but it seems in the research I've done, the time of Christ, the healing arts was Greek-inspired, and it was this Hippocratic um, influence and they believed in the four different humors, the bile, the blood, the phlegm, the fourth humor that people had. So they, they, they didn't study anatomy. They thought that that was dirty to, to actually have pathology and study anatomy after someone had died, etc. So basically the point I'm making is the medical treatment was pretty crude. And it seems like Mark had the insight to see mm, it's really not helping these people at all, making her a lot worse. Uh, Luke, it's inter- I like this in this little um, parallel harmony of the Gospels, the commenter says here, um, well, let me just read what Luke says about the doctors. He's a lot more sympathetic because he's one of them. And, um, <laughs> so it says, and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone. So that's all he says about it. So, but this, guy, this commentator says, Luke the physician is more sympathetic to the efforts of those of his own profession than is Mark. So, indeed, that's true. <laughs> but uh, that's the way it is, right? <laughs> um, so I don't want to belabor it too much, but we, we get the point he's making. One of the R.T. France, he's a commentator I read, a really good writer, English guy, he, he says it's almost comical the way Mark throws this in here. And he thinks, he says Mark does that to just show the contrast between man's efforts and then Jesus... All you can do is just touch his cloak, and she's healed. So that's, I believe, too, the intention that Mark has here. Okay, so she endured much, gotten worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. So I said it before, it's convenient for her. This crowd, the anonymity, she can just sneak up, and she has, it seems, a little superstition, right? This isn't really in the Bible that you can just touch someone's cloak and somehow it should be zapped with, with healing. 
So I don't know exactly where she got that, but at that time there was a lot of understanding that touching was helpful. And they had seen and heard Jesus touch other people and heal them. So she has it in her mind. All she has to do is touch his garment and she'll get better. It's pretty clear she wants to be undetected. She wants to do it stealth. She wants to have a secret kind of faith that will help her out. And even says that there in verse 28. She thought, if I just touch his garment, I'll get well. And actually in Mark, it's not the first time in chapter 3, verse 10. It said he'd healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. So earlier in the book and in several other places in the gospel, you'll, you'll read about people wanting to touch him to get healed. And then, so she does that, and immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. So somehow she felt something in her that was different. She knew she was healed, physically healed. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. That word affliction, you know, healed of her health problem. It's a word that means her physical impairment got better. And so even though it seems like her faith is imperfect, right? She, she's just looking like a lot of people were looking to Jesus for healings or for food or for the miracles. They chased after him all the time looking for miracles. And Jesus says several places, especially in John, that, he knew all their hearts, and he didn't entrust himself to all of them, but he still performed miracles. He still showed mercy on people that even didn't have faith, ultimately, but he still had mercy on them. Um, so she's one of them that he, he healed. And uh, he rewarded her little faith. In verse 30, immediately... So immediately she was healed, and then verse 30, immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around to the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Always has been a hard couple of verses for me to get to. I don't, it seems strange that he's able to heal her with his power, but the implication here is he doesn't really know who did it, right? Have you guys ever found that to be odd? Uh, dilemma to reconcile? Do you think he didn't know or did he want to come forward? The books are always so smart. I think he knew. Yeah. And I think and I think he wanted her to publicly come forward. I've read one commentator that, that believes that. that yeah. He wanted her to come forward. There's several ways to look at it, but I, I think it has to be true. So we get into um, the nature of Jesus on earth, you know, his incarnation, you know, what limits did he have physically? We know he couldn't be omnipresent. He had to be one place at one time. But he did have omniscience. He didn't know what people were thinking. He knew about demons. Uh, he was able to heal people from far away. Lazarus, you know, wasn't even near him, and he was able to heal people. So he has God's power, but there is some limit to it because of his um, human body. But I believe for sure here uh, he knew who it was because... Well, several reasons. One is lots of people were bumping into him, right? They weren't all healed. At least it doesn't say here. They didn't just touch Jesus and it's like there's a short circuit from his battery and all of a sudden everything gets better in people. She was healed because she had faith, right? And I believe he knew it. And when it says Jesus perceiving in himself the power proceeding from him had gone forth, I think it's, um, well, I think he knew who it was. And that's how, when he, why when he turned around, I mean, how would he, if he didn't know, how would he know, right? I mean, he turns around and he, he singles her out ultimately. So uh, I think this is just Mark's way of describing humanly what happened. But, and when he says, who touched my garments, it's a rhetorical. He, he's publicly calling her out. Who touched my garments? But he's probably looking right at her, right? And he knew exactly who had touched him. So it wasn't really the touching him that healed her. It was her faith, her little faith, imperfect as it was, she... You know, made her way there and had faith to be healed. The other interesting thing about the verse to me is this power proceeding from him. Uh, so, Jesus expended energy. God expends energy to heal people, right? It's not like God doesn't know when miracles happen. God actively, I believe this is saying this, helps us. He, he consciously, overtly uses energy to help us. He directs his efforts for his work to help his people. It's not like we have an impersonal God who's just sort of up there and has spun the earth and things are just happening. He, he actively works 
um, at helping us, healing us, giving us faith, um, causing us to know him better. So uh, Jesus, for sure, it says here, expended energy to heal her. And he knew who touched him because of her faith. So when he asked this rhetorical question, as usual, the apostles have a little bit, I think, of an irreverent, irreverent response, right? The kind of wise guy, Peter, actually saying this because it says in, um, I think it's Luke that says it's Peter who answered him. Um, does it say Peter here? No. It says, his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? So it's actually a logical question. It's like, really? There's so many people here. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you, because we're, we're making our way through this thick crowd. Um, but I think it is a little irreverent of an answer. They didn't really understand what Jesus was, was getting at. Uh, and then it says, Jesus looked around to see the woman who had done it. So here, verse 32, you clearly know, he, he knew it was a woman. One of the other verses, the pronoun used is a feminine pronoun. So it's basically, he's looking for the woman and he saw her who did it, is what it's saying. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So she basically comes initially, secretly, and then she has this full public confession before him of what she had done. She's fearful because she's encountering God, for one thing. But like Lee said also... Now she's exposed. She's this unclean person. And, she know, and the other thing she may be fearful of is she knows by touching Jesus, he, she makes him unclean, ceremonially unclean. So that probably scared her. She knew she shouldn't do that. Uh, she, fearful, trembling, aware that of what had happened, came and fell down, and she's prostrate before him too and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter. So this is the first time Jesus, the only time actually Jesus calls anybody daughter. So it's a, it's a tender word for her daughter. Your faith has made you well. You know, not, not the short circuit. It was your faith that brought you to me that has made you well. And this word made you well. Okay, the whole verse. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So he says here, daughter, your faith has saved you. That's what the word made you well. The Greek is sozo, to save, and it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about spiritual wellness, spiritual salvation. You've been saved. So he says, daughter, your faith has saved you. You have faith in me. That's what has saved your spirit forever. You're one of my children. You're my daughter. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This is go in peace and be healed of your physical disease too. But the most important thing is that she came to Jesus and he saved her spirit. It reminds you of other verses. As many as received him in John chapter 1. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That verse applies to her. She received him. She had faith and he gave her the right to become his child, his daughter even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And in Luke's account of this, Jesus says to her, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So this interlude, we haven't even got to Jairus' daughter yet. Jesus is busy man. He's marching through this town to basically bring someone back from the dead. And he gets interrupted and does that, it doesn't seem like he's saying, um, I don't have time for you, I've got to get to Jairus' daughter. The whole image here, and we'll actually summarize it later, but the whole image here to me is Jesus is just so in control, right? There's chaos all around him, and, he, and it doesn't, he's just this calm, he's in control, he is God, he's healing, he knows what's going on, he's not nervous about Jairus' daughter, he'll get to that because he he knows when she's going to die, etc. So you have this image of chaos all around, pleadings, desperate people, death. They're scared out of their minds. And Jesus just calmly doing this, doing that, marching and performing his mission. And he knows you it. You see the same thing in Lazarus' death when they came to inform him that yeah. he had died. Yeah. That if you had been there, yeah. he would not have died. Right. And he calmly says, all right, yeah. let's go see him. 
go to Bethany. Yeah. Because there's, there's no urgency right. in his miracles and what he's yeah. doing. That's right. And they were wringing their hands for four days. Yeah. That's how long it took. Right. And Jesus, right, no urgent. He knows. He's the man. He, he's got it all just ironed out. And you just, I think in this, these two miracle stories, you see it. it it's really remarkable to me, the, um, the image that Mark's given us. Okay, so he heals her, verse 35, while he was still speaking. So you get these guys, they're probably uh, Jairus' friends or family uh, running out of the house saying, oh, your daughter's died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. She's dead. So these guys don't understand Jesus' power, first of all. Um, kind of rude, actually. It's pretty blunt to say it like that. You know, they just kind of run out and say that. Your, your little daughter, who you're pleading for, and you've... Um, you know, humbled yourself and sort of denied your, your whole faith, really, because all those people are going against Jesus and your colleagues are going against him. And so they just come out and blurt it out, your daughter's died, why trouble the teacher anymore? And then you have, again, the image of Jesus. It says he overheard what was being spoken. So he kind of hears it, but it doesn't really phase him at all, obviously. And he says to the official, uh, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. So again, this calm, assuring voice of Jesus to the official who had faith initially, Jesus is able to comfort him even, even more and tell him, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. So just more evidence that he's in control and how he casually sort of dismisses their comments, sort of talks over them and just comforts Jairus. It's the same formula that we've read elsewhere, uh, believe and you'll be healed. In chapter 2, when he healed the paralytic, remember, they lowered the guy into the... Into the uh, I guess Peter's mother's house from the roof. They cut, cut away the roof. Um, he said to the paralytic, sons, your sins will be forgiven, so believe in me and you'll be healed. In chapter 9, we'll get to another healing where um, a child is being, he's demon-possessed and he uh, rolls in the fire and he just, they can't control him. He's burning and rolling into these fires and Jesus casts the demon out and he says, um, all things are possible to him who believes. And then immediately the boy is healed, chapter 9. So this formula, I guess what I'm getting at is believe and be healed, believe and be healed is what Jesus demonstrates while he's on earth. He makes that connection over and over and over again. Okay, so don't be afraid, only believe. Verse 37, yes, so he arrives at the home. And then this is another example where he takes uh, his intimate group with him, Peter, John, and James, into the room with him. And there's a lot of questions about why did he do that. There are other healings like, um, okay, Jesus raises three people from the dead in the Gospels. One is Lazarus, the second one is this 12-year-old, and the third one is a guy, it's a really fascinating story. Do you know who it is, anyone? It's in Luke chapter 7. Well, just flip there real quick just so we can contrast it. It's such a strange scene, um, but it's public, very public. Uh, if someone finds it, let me know. It's in Luke 7. 7-11. Thank you. Yeah, it should be easy to remember. 7-11. Soon afterwards, they went into a city called Nain. His disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. I mean, this is, the dead man sat up and began to speak. You talk about strange, right? I mean, the funeral procession, they're carrying this coffin, and he just touches it, get up, and then he just pops out of the coffin. I mean, it's, it's amazing, right? I mean, what a, a, a real, visible, public, dramatic miracle. Um, the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. I mean, I bet, right? That would be a fearful thing to witness. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And the report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. So, different than this, this one seems to be more private, where he takes the mother and the father and his three closest disciples into the room where the girl is. 
so for some reason, Jesus decides sometimes to limit his, the visibility of his miracles to just a few for whatever reason. We've talked about some of the possible reasons for that. For sure, crowd control is one practical reason he did it. Uh, another reason is it's just, he, you know, in John it says, if you write down all the miracles Jesus did, you can even fill up all the books in the world, right? So um, his fullness hadn't come yet. He's not here just to heal people physically. And it seems like he wants to be sure that the fullness of his victory over death, which is demonstrated when he rises from the dead, um, until then, he seems sometimes to tell people to keep it, certain things on the, you know, quiet. And this is one of them. So he gets there, it says, uh, they came to the house, he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. So what this is about is uh, the Jewish people, when someone would die, they would, it was different than the way we have funerals. We, we're more quiet and somber, but when people died back then, it was um, loud. They would hire people routinely actually hire professional mourners to come there and wail and cry and play these flutes. And that was part of the ritual. They had to play flute. And the music was apparently not harmony, okay? It was just high-pitched, shrill. The flutes didn't match. The wails didn't match. They were professionals. They were hired to do this. So it was really a scene that was um, misery, right? It was death. And they were projecting that idea how it was miserable to leave the earth. And so already somehow by the time they get to the house, these people were there. So either she was, you know, deathly ill for a while, they're anticipating this, or it took them a little time to get to the house. I'm not sure which. But when he gets there, these professionals are there loudly weeping and wailing. Entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? So he's saying, you know, basically, stop, stop. Stop, don't do this, because the child has not died, but is asleep. So, a couple things about sleep. First of all, it's often a synonym for death. Jesus uses that a lot. He used it with Lazarus. And um, when Stephen dies, the first martyr, it says he, um, he, he says his final words, and he says, having said this, he fell asleep which means death. So sometimes that word sleep is used as a synonym for death. Other times it seems like he, Jesus is describing these people he raises. So he's saying she's asleep, she's dead, but not really. So here, though, probably, I think he means basically the child has not died. She's not died. She's just sleeping. Um, and, of course, what do they do? They start laughing at him. Some people, the commentators, think it's possible actually that she was not dead. She was in sort of this coma state. But you can't think that if you read the Matthew, Matthew and Luke's account of this. And you really can't read it into this either because they're the professionals. I mean, they do this all the time. And, they're all, and, and so it, it, they're not going to have their ritual and ceremony unless they know she's passed away. But if you read... Matthew, and it says, um, it's pretty clear that she's dead. Mm. I want to find it for you just to confirm it. It's not Matthew, it's Luke. Uh, Well, I can't find the exact verse, but basically it's either Matthew or Luke where it's very clear that she, she is dead. Jesus doesn't use the word sleep. It's very clear that the people tell her she is dead. Uh, I think that is true. She died. This is a miracle of raising someone from the dead. They begin laughing. Uh, but again, it doesn't seem to phase Jesus, obviously, right? They begin laughing at him, but putting them all out. So he says, mm, okay, you can leave. Uh, we'll stay here. He took the child's mother and father and mother and his own companions, and entered the room where the child was, taking the child by the hand. And this is real tender, okay? So he takes this dead child by the hand, and he says, Talitha, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, Talitha or Talitha, come. Talitha, come. And that means, you know, well, Mark tells us what it means, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. 
It's also, that word means little lamb. That was, a, that was like an affectionate word that they would use apparently at that time for little children, little lamb. They'd call them, you know, little lamb. It's really cute. I mean, it's really tender that he goes in this girl. He says, little lamb, get up. And it's like it's what the child's parent would say to wake him up, right? When they go in the morning and say, hey, little lamb, get up. That's what Jesus says to her. So I, I just think it, it just points to really the humanity of Jesus and his kindness and his, um, you know, sentimental is not really the right word, but he's just really uh, tender to this family and to this girl and just walks in and says, little girl, get up. And immediately she got up and started to walk. She's 12 years old. Um, and so that's his second miracle in this set. And then that last verse, it says, and immediately they were completely astounded, just like they were astounded when he was able to stop the sea and stop the ocean, just like they were astounded when he cast out the demons, just like they were astounded with all of his miracles. Immediately they were astounded. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. Um, interesting ending with the eating. But I think it points to, um, well, first, the strict orders not to tell anyone. We've already talked about the reason he probably does that. But the eating is, uh, I think he just, you know, I, I think she was sick for a while and hadn't eaten. And now she's got life back. She's a human. And he's just compassionate. And he knows, no one, everyone else probably just freaking out. And he knows, oh, wait. She needs to eat, actually. She, she's been sick and she's hungry. So he's still just looking out for her. I think it speaks to his, you know, further his compassion. So to me, the image I have, this scene is, is powerful. These two miracles, unlike other sections so far we've come to, I just see Jesus as this um, completely in control of everything. All the chaos, all the fear around him, death, illness, crowds, confusion, touching, pressing, don't know where he's going, what he's doing. And he is just, you know, slowly, methodically marching on his mission, totally in control. The apostles don't really understand it, the people around him don't understand it, but Jesus is completely in control. And... You see his contrast with, you know, even the mourners. He walks in and they're mourning and there's crazy music and they're wailing. And he just walks in, casts them out, touches her and heals her. It's a great image. And so the application for us is what? Someone tell me, what is the application for us? It is the same today, right? It is the same for us today with our life. If um, your life seems chaotic, things come your way that you don't expect, illness or life events or relationships or the church goes bankrupt or whatever, right? It's coming our way and God knows about it. I was kidding. That's a joke, Randy. You're supposed to laugh at the church going bankrupt. My, my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but really, right? So it's the same application for us today is Jesus, you know, we're his little lambs, we're his sheep, and he is completely, utterly in control of every single thing, whether you know it or not. And so that, that's, I think, the intentional image Mark's, you know, portraying to us here in this half chapter. Any comments, questions, insights, disagreements? It's clearly limitless in his power. Mm -hmm. And you just get the glimpse, you know, that his healing ministry was just a flurry, that he was dispensing mm -hmm. his power. Yep. For primarily to validate, you know, his deity, and mm -hmm. his, to demonstrate his power so that his teaching would be validated, but driven by his compassion mm -hmm. for the hurting and the diseased and the. Mm -hmm the inadequate medical system yep. of the day yep. that was Mark talking about. Mm -hmm. But obviously he's always, you always see from time to time he makes a statement about our faith. It is your faith that has healed you. But yet there are many times he just healed at his own mm -hmm. will and discretion regard to demonstrate yep. his power so that faith could be directed towards mm -hmm him but you know many would take statements like that and misuse it and make faith the object of the power mm -hmm. 
The faith is always meant to be expressed towards an object, and he's clearly the object. Mm-hmm. Which the lady believed in, that if I just touch his garment, mm-hmm. that's all he needs. And then her her faith is demonstrates demonstrated even broader when he when she fell fearing and trembling. Mm-hmm. He knows it's me. Yep. And I don't want to hide in, in fear of judgment. Right. But she fell upon his mercy at that point, mm-hmm. which was another demonstration of her faith. Yeah. That would have so. Yeah, it's a, it's always a challenge to know why didn't he heal? Why doesn't he heal everybody? Why didn't he touch everybody and heal them? And why didn't he raise everybody from the dead? And it's just the wrong question to ask, right? Don't know why, but he did chose choose to raise some people. And I think when Jesus was on Earth, the, the main reason he's able, well, he did all these miracles was it was a unique time. This was unique. He's on Earth for these three or four years of ministry. And this is just a vehicle he used to bring people to him, these miracles and the healings. He gave that power to his apostles to do that. And um, they used it for God's purpose. And some people, because he's so wise and smart, he decides not to heal. And he's still merciful and kind and works out his will perfectly so. Any other thoughts? The examples that we looked at this morning involve you know, people touching Jesus or Jesus going and putting his hands on them in order for them mm-hmm. to be healed, you know, saying to Lazarus, they said, well, if you'd have been here, I'd have the saying. You know, but in Luke 7, 1 there, prior to verse 11, where the centurion said, yeah. I've yeah. got a servant, you know, yeah. he's going to want him to heal. And Jesus, you know, he told Jesus, you don't, you don't have to go. All you got to do is speak it. Mm-hmm. And of course, Jesus referred to his faith as the greatest faith That's right. that he had seen in Israel. Yep. I just find that yep. amazing. So the, the Gentile guy. Yeah. Yep. Anything else? Great. Well, we'll pick up next, well, next week. We'll pick up. I think we will, like I said, go through the first half of chapter 6 and then we'll take a break for a few weeks. Thank you.